All right, what's going on, everybody? We're going to do a little different series here on war stories. My name is Preston Stewart. John Wagner is back. What's going on, John? Hello, how's it going? And John was on, um, I don't know when this one will come out, but a couple episodes ago, talking about some work he was doing with uh, getting interpreters, Afghan interpreters to the U.S. And we shared that episode, uh, got some feedback from some people and some feedback from one of John's buddies was he thought a couple of the stories in there really helped kind of humanize the war, which sounds weird, maybe, but I also understand it. Um, It's like this weird conflict the last 20 some years where a lot of people have deployed, a lot of people have deployed a lot more than once, but in general, it seems like there's not a lot known about it. Is that the right way to say that, John? I don't know. You'd probably say that known or said, and and people are very respectful. I think there was a lot of lessons learned from Vietnam that you know, no one really wants to ask too many questions. And then some people, when they want to talk about war, they just want to talk about action scenes and pretend like they're a movie. But there's there's so much more to it and there's so many, so many more stories that are really interesting. Um, and yeah, that was, that was what, what my buddy was getting at is it'd be good to hear some of those stories from, from people like you and Preston. Yeah. So um, I guess that's a good way to, that, that's you know, no promises, but that's what we're going to try to do is just to, to talk about some experiences. I think we'll start, we'll get into a little West Point banter. Um, at one point we'll pull a third member, Connor McNamara, who was also on a couple episodes ago. Um, we'll try to get Connor in here for that because, uh, the three of us lived together for one semester, but went through all four years, but we'll, or went through all four years together. So we'll talk West point at some point, uh, definitely in a larger group, but John and I had a career that kind of mirrored each other throughout. So we can kind of go back and there's going to be like details that, that, well, I'm just going to get this out of the way now. Um, I call them wags like nine times out of 10. So you're going to hear that and I'm going to slip up. I'm not going to say it ahead of time. So anyways, wags is going to be able to fill in a lot of gaps um, and I'll do the same. So there's enough overlap to where, I mean, these are stories that we, we tell when we're together, when we get together for reunions or, or catch up on the phone. And we have not seen as much combat as a lot of people. And we didn't go on as many missions as a lot of people. There's, there's guys who've done like 10 plus deployments and neither one of us can relate to that. Um, But when we are together, it's usually not telling, you know, combat stories, but it's still war stories. It's, it's silly things that happened or, or challenging things that happened. And anyways, hopefully over this and however many episodes we do this, we can draw some of those out and present kind of the, uh, the other side, still interesting side of modern combat, modern deployments. Yeah, and the cool thing is that you and I did four years at West Point together, sometimes living together, uh, eating two meals a day together, and then we happened to go to the same post, Fort Campbell, and then we happened to be in the same battalion twice, and then we happened to deploy together two separate times. Uh, doing very similar roles. So in that sense, there's, there's a lot of interesting coincidences and, and that's, it's, it's fun to, uh, to kind of 
rehash some of these stories with someone that lived it with you. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sure I've forgotten a lot that, that you could help me remember. And there's, there's just a lot of fun things to talk about. So, yeah, I'm excited. So for a little context there, when you start at West Point, you go through Beast Barracks. Basic training was like six, seven weeks Somewhere around yeah, there. I don't even know anybody. I think it was six or seven. Yeah. I just remember a few pieces. Yeah. Um, so Wags and I were in the same squad. Squad of 10 out of 32 different platoons, four squads per platoon. So, um, <laughs> right. So we were in the same squad um, and stayed in the same company for four years at West Point, like just about everybody did. But then we both picked Fort Campbell but there's four brigades at Fort Campbell. We both ended up in the same brigade, another luck, then went to the same battalion. There's what, five or six battalions in a brigade. Yep. Then, um, yeah, so then, and then deployed, I mean, I don't know, we were, we crossed paths a lot on the first deployment and we're only a couple miles apart, came back, moved together back to the same battalion. And then, I mean, it's just, it would have been a lot of, uh, overlap with anybody but the fact that it goes all the way back to our first day at west point right is is pretty is weird yeah yeah i remember that that first day it's very overwhelming and uh i meet you preston and i find out i forget how i found out but you had went to a high school in indiana called culver military academy and i i went to a high school in indiana as well and and I knew of Culver Military Academy. It wasn't very close to me. Um, so, yeah, it was right away like, wow, there's a guy in my squad from Indiana. This is so cool. Um, but yeah, never did I expect that, that all, we'd, we'd spend the next 10 years together. <laughs> did I, uh, do you remember anything from, well, here, I'll ask you and then I'll tell you like the one thing I remember from day one. Um, because it's kind of a blur. Like when, when you show up at West Point, you kind of know what you're getting into. They do something where they, they move you into an auditorium and they give you this briefing and you've just got a bag of like a couple things. They, they give you everything. Um, and there's some point where they say like, I don't know, what is it? You have 60 seconds to say your goodbyes, something along those lines, 30 yeah, seconds, two minutes. Cause now. your parents are still with you at that point. Yeah. So you've got like a very short time to say goodbye and it's super awkward. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You're surrounded by everybody else. Right. So, um, you do that. I remember that kind of, um, but like then they, they pull you into some doors and it's just kind of the, the picture of when anybody enters the army and there's people yelling and it's confusing and you don't know where you're going. And like, you can't look around and you start to look around and they yell at you for looking around. So, um, a lot of it's a blur, but, um, I remember it was late in the day. You end, you end day one by taking an oath. I don't remember exactly what that oath was um, or how it ties into the arm. Like, I don't know what it correlates yeah. with to somebody that lives. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, yeah it might have been like a West Point oath or something. I'm not sure. That's like the thing. And your parents can kind of see you from a distance, um, mm-hmm. but you're in a uniform. And uh, I remember we were like getting ready to form up and I didn't have pants. You did not have pants. Didn't have pants. No. So like, like they, they never issued you the pants. Yeah. So you had no option to get pants. I don't remember how I got them, but I remember I was the only one without pants. And Sergeant Solomon, our squad leader, was in a little bit of a panic because it's what we you'd wear uh, workout shorts for most of the day. 
um, with a white t-shirt. And then you had to put these for the first time, put this uniform on and go out there and take this oath. And I made it, I had pants. I don't know if I had to wear somebody else's. I just remember it was one of those things where like, they weren't in my bag. And I don't, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Um, And they're, you know, they're yelling at me, but at the same time, recognizing that like, I didn't look, I opened the bag you gave me and the pants weren't in there. Um, Nobody knew what to do. So I I probably wore somebody else's pants for that. But that's like the one thing I remember from our days when it's called reception day. Yeah. Yeah. My, My big thing is the second day, um, cause they were real strict on like what you can and can't bring with you. And I remember I wanted to follow all the rules. So I, they basically said, you can't bring anything with you. So I put all my stuff in this bag. I only, I only had like what I had, um, what I was wearing, which is like some very unfashionable clothes, which I didn't realize that that was a poor choice until afterwards. The first time I was able to leave post and that was the only clothes that I had, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, the, the second day you wake up and you have to shave and I didn't even pack my own shave kit. I didn't have a razor. <laughs> and, and I tell that same guy, Sergeant Zellman, I'm like, I don't have a razor. I can't shave. He's like, what, why would you not have your own razor when you're in the military now? What's wrong with you? Um, but he went and bought me a razor at the cadet store so I could, I could shave that day. <laughs> I felt so stupid. It's a weird time to think about it. Like I just went on a trip last week and like the stress level's low. If you think about how many things do you really, really need for a trip? Because like, if you have your phone in your wallet, like that, you kind of, you can pick anything else up like at the airport or when you get there, right? Like there's, but you didn't really have that option. Like once you got in the door in our day, like. That was it. <laughs> hope you brought it i don't remember having a lot of personal stuff at all though right yeah they limit that and they i don't think you can even have a wallet with you during the basic training so anyways it was it was hard to plan for because you're just a dumb 18 year old kid and they're trying to tell you to like forecast what you're going to need after six weeks of training that you're terrified to start and you have no idea what the training is going to be about and you, you don't know what you're going to need in six weeks. So yeah, it was, I was not prepared for any of it. My only other big memory from beast was um, you had to carry around this. You had to carry around a couple of things, right? You had to carry water at all times. And I think that's where I messed up here. You also had to carry around this book of, I thought I had it in here. Knowledge yeah the knowledge book of all this information that you're supposed to memorize and be able to recite. And I'd forgotten one of those things. So they, they put me on the wall and and were drilling me, asking me different pieces of information. Um, And the first one as kind of like a punishment just for being an idiot. And they asked me what one of those things is the star spangled banner. And like, look, like all of the things in that book are, you know, master's level military information. There's some simple ones, right? It's like the officer ranks, name the officer ranks, or I don't know. There's some really easy stuff. Star Spangled Banner was in the category of like, it's a layup. You don't have to study it. Everybody knows that. Right. Except for me at that point, I couldn't even think of the first word. And (laughs) it's worth noting that like, they don't, they don't hit you. You know, it's not like they're going to physically assault you. 
the, the worst they're going to do is yell at you a little bit and embarrass you. And, and uh, even then it's all things considered pretty G rated, you know, and I was just sweating buckets. And like, I remember sweat dripping off my face and like cadre kind of forming up to be like, this guy is at West Point. He wants to be in the army and he doesn't even know the first word of the star spangled banner and just a complete, a complete blank. Like, <laughs> yeah. Thanks guys. But oh, man. anyways, should we save some more of the West Point stuff for when we get Connor uh, or somebody, yeah. we should pull somebody else in for that too. Yeah. It'd, it'd yeah, be fun to team. It's a lot fun of funny to, stories there. Yeah, but it's also fun to to team up on somebody two on one and make them feel really bad about, about something they did or didn't do. You know. But, yeah. So, um, yeah, let's jump forward to a little bit of the army time there. So, we both graduated two thousand nine, both branched field artillery. You left out a key key piece of our history together, which is our time at Fort Sill. So we right. went out to Fort Sill for six to nine months, something like that for the, was it field artillery basic officer course, something like that. You then went to ranger school. You were a class ahead of me. You went to ranger school. That's right. Yeah. So I started like a month ahead of you. Uh, it was two things. It was like the officer leader course as general for all branches. And then we happened to have our field artillery school right there for the follow on six months that's why we were there for like eight or nine months um so yeah we got apartments there and outside of fort still it was our first time living on our own not in a barracks um we were in these really run down uh kind of rough area of lawton oklahoma uh we're, we're training every day and what was interesting was as I remember as we were there, I remember distinctly it was dark. We were in a morning formation and uh, one of the instructors who's a captain or a major, he, he comes out and he's like, all right, the uh, Afghanistan surge brigades are out. This is going to affect you guys. And at this point we're, we're just kids that graduated West Point. We're trying to figure our, our lives out. All we know is we're going to Fort Campbell. We don't really know anything else outside of yeah. that. And, and they list off all these brigades and they say like, um, it was probably like 10 brigades they listed off. And I remember trying to listen for one-on-one because we knew going to Fort Campbell, we were going to be in the 101st Airborne Division. So I heard him say like two or three brigades from 101st Airborne Division. And lo and behold, those were the third brigades. That's where all the the new fresh lieutenants were going to make sure that they were all plussed up for their deployment to Afghanistan. So yeah, while we, while we're in Fort Sill, we found out that where we're going, Fort Campbell is probably going to deploy us right away, which is kind of what we expected. But when, when you, when you, when you hear it and you find out that those are the brigades going, then it's kind of a, Oh my goodness type moment. You know, do, do you remember that? Kind of. Yeah. I, it wasn't as formal for me hearing it like that. I probably heard it from you, to be honest. Um, if you got it from an instructor or something like that, I probably heard it from you. But it was, I don't know. I was going to say the first dose, but certainly not the first of like the army rumors, right? 
there's like some of this stuff, you just can't list, you know, the dates of a deployment or the location for a deployment, but everybody kind of knows. And if you get a hold of the right person, they can tell you for sure. And this is yeah. one of those things like who's deploying and when the answers are out there, but they're also not. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. Um, yeah. So I was, you're right. I, I went from there to, to ranger school, uh, which is, you know, it's a 61 day school in the army. It's a leadership school. It also tests your physical uh, abilities and, and really it's, it's pushing everyone to their mental breaking point, physical breaking point simultaneously while trying to, uh, show that you can lead troops at the same time while you're at those breaking points. Um, so for me, I went from yeah, Fort Sill to Fort Benning is where Ranger School starts. And then uh, you do three phases. You do like a Fort Benning wood phase, and then you do a mountain phase in Northern Georgia, and then you do a swamp phase in Florida. And I was fortunate enough to be done with it at that point. I didn't have to redo any phases. Um, and then from there, I, I went straight to Fort Campbell and we had kind of leapfrog. So, so Preston, you were, I was ahead of you at Fort Sill. Then I went to Ranger School and then you went to Fort Campbell. So when, by the time I got to Fort Campbell, you were the one that kind of knew everything. You were already in the unit. You kind of, <laughs> you were two or yeah. three weeks ahead of me. So you were, in my view, you were the professional and you, you knew it all. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And, and that's when I found out like, oh, hey, Preston's in my brigade. This is cool. Or my battalion. This is really cool. So I want to back it up real quick because, um, you know, while you're at West Point, there's, you're, you're, you're kind of shut off from the world in a lot of ways. And there's a critique that I think is valid that doing that um, impacts West Point graduates when they come out into the real world because they you don't have to deal with all the things that a college student might have to, or somebody, or, you know, at a, at a traditional university, um, for better or for worse. But either way, you don't have those experiences, and, and it can kind of hit you, hit you square in the face when you get out. So, uh, quick shout out to my uh, one of my roommates, Mike Schumacher, for telling me, "Don't worry about uh, booking an apartment at Fort Sill. There's so many there; you can just show up and find one." And uh, <laughs> So that was not the case. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, so we show up to Fort Sill uh, with a truck full of equipment, signing into the unit the next day and uh, have to drive from apartment to apartment. And they ask for, uh, for availability, which they didn't have because we got there when, <laughs> when all of the other lieutenants were getting there and moving in. So there wasn't availability. So um, cool. Yeah. Good lesson learned there. And we yeah. lived in kind of a dump for a while. It's a pretty shady area, but. Um, it was. Yeah, yeah, on that same note. So, um, again, never been to an apartment. I don't know what I'm doing. I get this lease. I, I move in. I bring my stuff upstairs. It's the middle of summer, and it's very hot there. I don't know that you have to, like, set up your utilities. And I have my girlfriend with me, who's not my wife. And and we're sleeping on an air mattress and it is miserably <laughs> hot and humid. And she, she's it's like, like, July, you didn't, you didn't July set up the, 
yeah, yeah, it was July or August, and she can't believe that I was that obtuse that I didn't think to like turn on the electricity. But yeah, you're you're right. We we were sheltered in a lot of ways, and we never had to deal with like setting up your utilities uh, until that point. So definitely made some mistakes. Do you remember that place had so two things about that uh, apartment unit? I have a memory of having to pay with a money order. Like I remember having to get them. Is that right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. And and he had to get uh, multiple transactions, or, or that's the way I had to do it. I had to go to like a ATM or something and just take max it out three times to go pay my rent. Yeah, I had to go to different ATMs to. Yep. Yeah. Um, that one's not on us. That's on the apartment unit. But the the last thing is, do you remember they said like it comes with free HBO or something? But really, they yeah. had stolen cable, um, and you could be watching TV and the channel would change. <laughs> You can sit there and then for some, some random person would be flipping through the channel and then the channels would be different. So like ESPN would be channel 25 today and tomorrow might be like 64. Yeah, that was sketchy. It was free, free cable. Yeah. Perfect. All right, I'll get back to some army stuff. So um, what WAGS is, is not hitting on here that I'll, I'll uh, bump them up for a little bit. Ranger school is, is kind of like the premier leadership school in the army. And it's a, you know, I'll say requirement for infantry officers to go through the school, a requirement for people that go on to serve in the 75th Ranger regiment. I say requirement for infantry officers, a requirement is in um, just about all have to go at some point in their career. That doesn't mean that all pass. Not all field artillery officers go. In fact, I think my class of 50 had one slot. How many did you guys have, John? You had- we had, yeah, it was interesting. We had 17 slots. And um, there was a group of about, I don't know, 70 of us that were interested in those 17 slots. And we did like a different little training regiment um, in a way. And they narrowed us down and there was some attrition and they, when they found out that we had 17 slots, they, they ranked us one to however many there were left. Um, and I remember I was ranked fairly high and then they sent us off to ranger school, but the prep wasn't all that great. And uh, of those 17, only two of us ended up completing and graduating. So I, I, think, I think we, our class did not help follow-on classes because then I think like you said there were were less slots for the for the next couple classes because uh yeah we did not prove ourselves worthy of getting all those slots because they're very competitive like everyone in the army wants these slots so to give 17 to some artillery school um, does not seem fair to some infantry unit that wants to send some some high-speed sergeant but so just to dial that in like Wags is at the top of the field artillery class and then was one of the few to graduate. Like it's, it's a really hard thing to do, but that's going to come back. Um, we talk about your job in Afghanistan. I think that's kind of the reason or one of the reasons, right. That you were earmarked for a job once you got down range. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we get to Fort Campbell, uh, both assigned to second brigade, 101st. And as field artillery officers, there's a couple different jobs we could have done, but they grabbed I got assigned to dog company, second battalion, 502nd wags to charger company. So, um, you know, C D company. Right. And 
when I got there, they were still at JRTC. So I got there on April Fool's Day in, uh, in 2010. They were down, so Joint Readiness Training Center in Louisiana. The whole unit was down there. So I hurried up and got to Fort, Hood, or Fort Campbell. And then the unit was gone for like another 20 days. So I just kind of sat around, didn't do anything. Checked in each day. But by the time you got there, Wags, maybe I sounded like an expert, but I'm not sure I'd even met, uh, met everybody at that point. It was kind of a weird yeah. welcome. Yeah, it was, I recall that now because, yeah, they had just finished this training session. It was kind of a bonding experience for the units uh, because it was the pre-deployment training. And then they come back and here we are, these fresh lieutenants that don't know anything. So we definitely, uh, as it is, as is the case with every new lieutenant, we had zero respect or credibility. Um, and yet along those same lines, so, uh, I was assigned the fire support officer of Charger Company, and they already had one that everybody loved. Oh, yeah. His name was Lieutenant Devine. And uh, they were very disappointed that I was the, the, the new guy I was going to take this role on uh, right as they're about to deploy because they were comfortable together. This guy was really good, he was experienced, and now they have a second lieutenant that doesn't know anything. Um, so yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a cold welcome for me. And, and I think I showed up with about two or three weeks before we deployed. So it was, it was kind of like meet everybody and pack your bags. We're leaving. And that, that was a little bit, uh, I don't know, alarming. It was kind of a hard first day on the job. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know what you mean when you say hard first day on the job, but it was also kind of nice to step right in and like everybody was busy. Like the first day I met the guys, they were packing containers that were going to Afghanistan like 48 hours later, right? It was, get your bag in there. If you want to take it, it's got to go now. It was, you know, looking back at, at some of the other jobs, there's a lot of times where you step in and it's kind of like, well, we got a field problem in a few weeks, but like this yeah. was hit the ground and go. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. In that sense, like you want to jump in and you want to, you want to make a difference or you want to be valued. Uh, so we are going to be valued. We don't have a choice. Uh, but that didn't mean that anyone was happy that we were on the team to begin with. <laughs> I remember everybody's to go back to the idea of like the rumors, everybody's always hyping up deployments or talking about what it could be. And Nobody really knows. It's kind of this weird thing in this war, if you think about it. Um, we went to Kandahar, an area called Zari District in Kandahar Province, and our brigade replaced a battalion. So we like, you know, four or five X'd the manpower that was in that area. But it was like an unknown. In 2010, do you remember that, John? It was like, like the amount of information we were getting about what was going on there and what the area was like was very little, at least at the yeah. junior officer level, I'll say. Yeah, and a lot of it was just kind of things that our leadership would say based on their previous experience or what they're hearing, and they were kind of really amping it up. Uh, I remember a couple of lines. Um, one of them came from my company commander, so my boss, and he says – you know, we can expect that as we approach these, these new areas and our helicopters, we're going to be taken on fire. 
immediately as we are landing for the first time, we're going to be taken on fire. And I'm thinking, wow, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to be sitting there with my, my duffel bag and we're going to be getting shot at as we're landing immediately, you know, and I have no idea. So I believe him. And, and, and they were genuine because, you know, what I didn't realize was that there's, there was a few stages before we get to that point, but, but they knew that the plan was generally for us to get to a big hub and go start creating bases in the heartland of the Taliban. And they didn't really know the details yet either. So all we were getting was this kind of speculation of, of what's going to happen. And it's weird because in 2010, Iraq was dying down. There were certainly still people being killed in Iraq. Um, but like the, the major fighting in that country was in the past by 2010. I mean, that was 2007, 2008 is kind of when it peaked and it had been slowing ever since. Um, by 2010, we were talking about how we're going to leave Iraq and Afghanistan had never really been, I mean, it, I don't know. I, I guess I just didn't know a lot about Kandahar. It, the fights were smaller, maybe. Um, yeah, there was such a, a light presence and, until that time, until that surge into Southern Afghanistan, there was a presence and I don't want to take away from anyone that was there, but yeah, um, they were spread really thin. So it'd be, there'd be a few platoons to cover like all of Kandahar. So they would patrol and they would, they would find Taliban and they were getting into fights, but they, they weren't like showing up in mass the way we did to, to really try to root out the Taliban and force to clear the area to allow for you know, the locals to take over the area and kind of run their, run the district again without the Taliban. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of new to everyone. I remember my, so my first boss, when I showed up, uh, captain X, I'll call him. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if you remember this being in a different company, the commander, first sergeant XO of my company, dog company, were all fired after JRTC. So in that like three week window, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they were all fired yeah. for their performance at JRTC. And all three new were brought in. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because you think about, you know, from the soldier's perspective, you know, they, I'm sure that they realized when they were in the training that their leadership team was not very good. And it, it was not a secret. I, I would almost guarantee you probably know better than I do, but so the, there was probably a huge sense of relief that there was new people, but also another, a newfound sense of appreciation. You know, what's going to happen? We have new guys that, are, that didn't train with us before. They didn't take part in any of this training. And now we're deploying with the new leadership. Oh, and now there's another new lieutenant. What's going on with our leadership here? But it really worked out for you guys. You guys had a great team. Yeah, no, it, it, it really did work out well. I like a part of me wants to tell some of the stories that I heard about this guy, but it's also like second and third order. And I, I feel like I'm stealing a story from somebody else, but it was bad. JRTC, the, the whole point of it is to kind of get your teeth kicked in and learn through making mistakes. But like he went over the top. They just made a lot of mistakes at the company level. And uh, 
you know, it's kind of cool if you think about it, that they, it worked. That's what it's for. Right. Um, yeah. They found out like, I guess this guy sucks. It wasn't just that he was bad at field problems. He's really bad at, at this job and they swapped him out. But our new commander came in, Tim Price, who was out in your neck of the woods now. Wags, you know that? Oh, I didn't. Battalion commander. Well, I mean, ish. He's, he's at Lewis, uh, battalion commander out of Lewis. Yeah. But um, I remember sitting down with him in one of our first meetings and he had been through some pretty heavy fighting in Iraq. He was talking about the concept of counterinsurgency in Southern Afghanistan. And he, I don't remember how he framed it, but essentially he said, sometimes you've got to kill a lot of people before you can have productive counterinsurgency as in there's way too many bad guys right now to even pretend to stand up a local market. Um, and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some real conversations when you're not, you talk, you've prepped, you've been training for war for at that point, been five years, but uh, when you're about to go and you start hearing stories like that, it, it really starts to sink in. I remember my first meeting with, with our uh, battalion commander, he, he uh, sat me down and, you know, wanted to meet the new Lieutenant. And he said, you know, your, your training at Ranger school will serve you well. Uh, you see that water bottle over there? He points to a water bottle that I, I had with me. He's like, that'll be your shower. And I kind of laughed. I thought he was kind of like kidding a little bit. It, but then he, he looks at me real seriously and he's like, I'm not kidding. That, that's what it's going to be like. We're starting from nothing out there. And uh, that was true. It was very true. But, but that's where I think it's hard to understand. It is hard to get people on board with that thought, myself included, because you're saying it's 2010. We've almost <laughs> been in Afghanistan for a decade. There should be nowhere where we're starting from scratch. I remember those, those types of conversations of like, you're going to be eating MREs three meals a day and sleeping on the ground. It's like, get out of here. Right. Right. Cause we had heard people that were in Iraq and they kind of had apartments. Essentially they had nice little living quarters. They had TVs and playing video games. And you hear these stories and you're like, Oh, well that, that wouldn't be so bad. You kind of go back to the base and you can just relax and hang out and have fun. But yeah, that was, that was not the case. And, and I loved it. I, I loved what we had and how it was just rustic and we started from nothing and kind of created these bases. It was, it was a great experience. Did you look forward to it? Like once you found out you're deploying around the time you're at Campbell. Yeah. What were you thinking about it? I don't know. I was burnt out from ranger school. I was hungry all the time still because you kind of, you kind of get starved and you have to learn how to control your appetite uh, in those weeks after ranger school. How much weight did you lose at ranger school? It's hard to say because you don't get weighed when you're at your lowest um, and they feed you real heavy right before the end. So, so you don't really know how, how much weight you lose. But um, I do remember looking around at the people, especially like Connor, uh, and you just look like a whole different person. Like everyone just gets so gaunt and so, so skinny. Uh, that it's yeah it, it changes you and then what happens is it's hard to control that 
appetite afterwards. And some people just eat so much uh, after you graduate and you can eat a lot that they end up with these like chubby cheeks. For some reason, the weight just like goes straight to their cheeks. So they're kind of, they're still kind of skinny. They're, they're still in shape, but they just have these chubby cheeks from like the post ranger school cravings, I guess is what you can call it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, you burned out from ranger school. I interrupted you. You burned out from ranger school. I was asking if you were, were you excited? Were you looking forward to it? What do you, what do you remember? Yeah, I was, I was burned out. I just, I just wanted to spend some time with my girlfriend, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Cause I had been, you know, at ranger school, you don't get any contact with anybody. So, um, but at the same token, it got me super ready. Cause, cause my, our, our commander was right. Like, what we did in that deployment was similar in a lot of ways to like a extended ranger school. Um, so yeah, how did I feel? I felt a number of things that I wanted some extra time. I was also super excited. We had been looking forward to this moment for years. Um, I was also just, just so scared. And then I was nervous because I didn't really know my job yet. I was trying to prove myself, but it's hard to prove yourself when, there's just a few days to go and your job is like packing containers with equipment. You know, you're not doing much training. We were hardly doing PT really at the time. Um, so it was, it was nerve wracking. You can't get settled anywhere. I had like a three week lease on a duplex or something. Uh, so it's, it's just a very unsettling time. I remember being excited a couple, a couple of the emotions you hit there. So I was single at the time and that made it easier. No kids, no, no dog, nothing like that. So I was already living on a, when I got to Campbell, I knew we were deploying. So I just had a mattress on the floor, um, pretty Spartan living at baseline, but, um, I was excited for the reasons you said where it's like, that's been on our mind. Every day at West Point, they talk about how you're going to be leading men and women in combat. You're going to go to war. And, and not everybody did, especially now, not everybody is, right? And like, it felt like we just blinked. And, you know, I hadn't even, we hadn't even been out of West Point a year and we're getting ready to jump on a plane. And they're talking about how Connecticut's going to be, which is, isn't Connecticut kind of the Army's like subtle way of saying there's going to be a lot of fighting. I don't think they would use that anywhere else, right? Kinetic is the... Yeah, Kinetic, yeah. Yeah, boy, it's been a while. I thought you said, I thought you said Connecticut, the state. But yeah, yeah, Kinetic as in a lot of uh, action and, yeah, a lot of fighting. But I, I remember being excited because it felt like that test, right? The test you've been preparing for for who knows how long. Um, there's a part of me that feels like probably a lot of young men did throughout history, wanting to, like, it's the thing that's going to prove you, right? Like, go, go do this, not, not in a silly or irresponsible way of like, I'm going to go win some medal, but like, just the act of going to war, I don't know, felt like, it felt like checking a box as a man, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I was the scared part was mostly around, and it's funny how quickly this happened. Just looking back, I was scared that I didn't know enough to be in the job that I was doing. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, there's just 
there's so much to know, especially as a fire support officer, there, there's a lot of pressure on you. Not that it's more than an infantry officer, but there's all these things you have to know about working with different aircraft and you're supposed to like coordinate the different levels of aircraft and uh, call for fire and all this stuff. But aside from a couple of radio exercises at Fort Sill, we didn't have much experience doing that. So it was, there was definitely a, uh, a fear of failure going on and, and failure in this sense is, is just potentially devastating, which makes it just even more, uh, a lot more apprehensive because you know, like, okay, if I, if I don't know this particular way of getting the aircraft to, you know, attack the enemy, from this direction, then we might get stuck on this hill or something to that effect, right? And and you put a lot of pressure on yourself, but realistically, you know, there's a lot of checks in place. There's a lot of people that can help and some minimal information can go a long way in those situations. But uh, when we're in that stage and we're a young Lieutenant trying to prepare our minds to go to war, it's, you realize how much you don't know and you wish that you had been studying harder you wish that you had prepared yourself better somehow you and i didn't recognize at the time and and really i'm talking about like arrival to the unit into like the first month or two of the deployment even was i knew i didn't know everything I knew that my guys knew more than I did. We had, as fire support officers, we had a team of a couple, couple enlisted soldiers, 13 Foxes that, um, Ford observers that look, two guys on my team were brand new privates. They had four times as much experience as I did when it came to fire support, right? They spent their entire AIT doing that. You and I spent a month. Um, so the brand new private was more experienced than me. I knew that, they knew more than me. I knew that I didn't know everything. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to know everything. So I thought I was supposed to always have the answer when the commander asked or when the platoon leaders asked. And it took a little while to be comfortable with, hold on. Like, I got a guy, I got a guy, you know, or, hey, next time, just go to Sergeant Smith. Yeah. Yeah, something I learned in that same time frame, like within the first month of being there was, it ended up being a life lesson that I've always kind of carried with me, but uh, we were trying to get some good maps of the area that we were going to. They weren't really, we didn't really have good maps for some reason. Nobody did. Yeah. Yeah, no one did. (laughs) And, um, you know, we were at at Kandahar Airfield and this is a big base and uh, my commander was like, why don't you go find us some maps? And I asked for some guidance and he was just like, I don't know, there's a, there's a place over there that might be able to help you. So I go just start asking around and I get, I get to this like joint blah, 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 you know, this joint place run by some other country and um, some air force people. And I'm asking about maps and they, I tell them my situation and they, they start handing me things and, I come back with a bunch of maps and they weren't super helpful, but, but I came back with something and I learned 
a way to get maps and some people that can help you find maps and no one else had them. And um, I, I like, I bring them back to, to my company and uh, my commander was like, you see what happens when you just go walk around looking and trying to find out what's going on. You can learn a lot that way. And, and he was so right. Like sometimes just kind of wandering around asking questions can can make a big difference. <laughs> Dude, I, I think, uh, I don't remember doing that with you, but I have like the exact same experience of like talking to some Canadians and some RC South talk and they're pulling out these one to 50,000 maps that were useless. We threw them away very quickly. Um, our area, our entire AO as a company was like four square kilometers. And this map is the size of my wall. You know, it's like, like the, the, the usable space is like one inch by four inches, but we didn't have anything. And I got those. I don't know. I wonder how that went. I wonder if I, I'm sure there was a connection there because we overlapped at calf. Maybe I saw you walking in and was like, dude. Right. Maps are over there. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's probably, there's probably a connection that, that one of us heard about it and sent the other one. Go get a bunch of useless maps you're going to throw away before too yeah. long. Yeah. <laughs> you're so right, though. I think I still have one. It, it, they're about eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. And yeah, our, our section was about this big. It was yeah. useless. Let's go back real quick, too, before you deployed because this is something I have, just haven't really talked. I, don't, I feel like I haven't talked to very many people about, but the, the leaving process. So we, there's this, I was going to say this weird thing in the military, but it's not weird. It makes a lot of sense. Troop movements are classified. So you really weren't ever supposed to say like, hey, mom, I'm flying to Afghanistan on June 6th. But you also have a send-off like that day where you get on a plane and fly to Afghanistan. So like, you can't tell anybody, you're not supposed to put it on social, but you also have family members and whoever might be there. So I believe my, and everybody flies out differently. So we flew, we loaded up all the containers. We had a couple bags. I think I had a, a backpack and a rucksack. And then you carry your weapons and stuff on the plane. It's kind of a weird deal. Um, but it's a commercial flight, chartered commercial flight, right? So yeah. You load up at the unit and you have a quick formation and say bye to your family and, and get on the buses, get on the plane and, and, and off you go. It's a couple of commercial flights, and then a military flight. We can talk about some of that later, but yeah. You remember much about that? The, what did you yeah. do? Did you have everybody there? Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure how, happened this way but yeah so my my girlfriend Lauren was living with me for the few weeks that I was there um so she was gonna be there to like send us off and then my mom wanted to come down for it as well and you know of course as the lieutenant that wants to prove himself I didn't necessarily want to be sent off by my mom uh but at the same time, I'm going to war. I'm not going to tell my mom not to be there to say goodbye to me because that, you know, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so <clears throat> I, yeah, I remember showing up, it was, it was like an evening formation. 
Um, I walk over there with my mom and my girlfriend. We do some introductions with my team. Uh, and some of them have, you know, wives and kids because, you know, like my, my, uh, uh, my NCO, Staff Sergeant Wright, uh, my fire support NCO was older than me and he had a wife and a baby. And I can't imagine doing that in that situation, saying goodbye to your, your wife and kids. But, you know, for me at the time, I had a girlfriend and my mom was there. And so we did some introductions. You kind of stand around awkwardly looking at each other, um, watching the kids play, thinking about, wow, it's sad that they're not going to see their dad for a long time. Um, and then at some point, there's kind of a forced goodbye. And then it was kind of, you know, you don't want to say goodbye, but it's also kind of relieving just to, just to finally get the goodbye over with, you know, just, okay, let's get on the bus. Let's just do this. Uh, it, it was kind of, you're tired of the anticipation of it happening. Mm. You know? I remember the awkwardness. I had brothers there, brothers, parents, and one set of grandparents. So my family was all in central Illinois, you know, not far yeah. away, five hours. Um, they were taking my truck back with them. So, um, that helped the cause and the, uh, the deployment, but yeah, I remember, I remember saying goodbye in the air, in the, in a hotel parking lot to like half of them. And then the other half came to the little send off ceremony. But I remember that same thought of like, um, I can't be sad. Two things. Um, don't cry in front of these soldiers that you just met. <laughs> That's yeah. not a good, good start. Um, but also all the guys, not all, but like so many of them had families. They were saying goodbye to their wives and kids. And just thinking like, I'm lucky. And I've said that ever since. Like, I feel like I was lucky on those deployments to not have to deal with. I mean, and not have to, maybe a better way to say that is not put a wife and kids through that. Um, right. I mean, we knew it was going to be a year. There's always rumors of shorter and longer, but we pretty well knew we were going to be gone a year. Um, I remember you have this just standing around awkwardly to your point of like, we know it's coming. Let's just hurry up and get this over with. Right. And, uh, and doing those quick hugs and everything and not really knowing what to say. Um, I don't remember what I said, but I definitely was tearing up and, quickly put this the big the big sunglasses on uh, <laughs> and wore those until we got to the airfield i remember that for sure yeah yeah there there was definitely some tears um that i was holding back i remember and it, it, so then at that point you don't want to talk and i think a lot of us were going through it so there no one's really talking because if you start yeah. talking people will hear that you're like about to cry and uh, <laughs> or currently crying yeah, yeah. <laughs> or currently crying and just pretending like it's not happening um yeah it, yeah i remember specifically uh getting on this you know old white army bus and it's really dark in there and, and you sit down and it's like dead quiet and i was fortunate fortunate enough to sit with uh a guy that i kind of made friends with he was one of our supply sergeants and it was probably his third deployment. Uh, so he was able to like, kind of uh, start chatting it up and, you know, 
we had a some good conversation just kind of take your mind off of the the gravity of what just happened when you say goodbye to your your people you know and knowing they know that you might not come back you know that you might not come back you're all trying to pretend that like that's not the case uh but you're all thinking it at the same time and it is it is uh uncomfortable and it's very very emotional uh especially as a as a dumb kid that that doesn't really know what you're getting yourself into so that's something else I should have said earlier when I said I was excited about going is when it came time for our second deployment, I was not excited about going. Um, I was naive at this point and didn't, I was, you know, invincible, didn't recognize the dangers that were out there um, until you see them. So I agree. That's a good point. I, uh, there is, there was a little bright side on our, so John and I were on different flights out. I don't know how many, it was like 10 or something flights to get everybody out. That's some crazy number of yeah. the, just of the battalion, of the six or 700 strong battalion. We got to the airfield at Fort Campbell, which is like, the family's gone. They, they've all departed, right? We took the bus to get there. And there's, there's issues with the plane. So we wait for a while. And then eventually they tell us, actually, now your flight's been postponed till tomorrow. So we're like, but, but they didn't tell us this right away. It's a, it's a, it's a delay at the airport. You know how this goes. Um, We'd waited for six hours or something crazy. Like my family was back in Illinois um, when they tell us be back here tomorrow. And I just like, what do you think we're going to do now? Like (laughs) everything is packed. You could barely get all of your stuff into your rucksack and duffel bag, right? You're like trying to cram a toothbrush in on top. Like my truck's gone everybody's family has left. People have flown out of the state and uh, it would have been Bryson, Andy, like five of us got a hotel room together. Andy Roush's wife drove us there and we stayed in a hotel room, walked down the street to Burger King or McDonald's that night and walked walked back (laughs) and did it again the next day. But we didn't have to do the goodbyes the next day because everybody had already left. Um, some did. Some had to do that really awkward and you know tough goodbye twice. But uh, right, oh, man. yeah, random last night sharing a uh, sharing a bed with Bryson Shipman. I think it was. So <laughs> I'm guessing that that was not a uh, that was not expensed by the army. You just had to go find your find your way for a night, right? I mean, how I remember it and how it actually happened, right? Um, the five of us splitting the hotel room came out to what, like $17 a person or something. So we, right. we, we sucked that one down, but I, I'm sure they opened up some sort of barracks for the soldiers. Right. They, I'm sure they yeah. did something. We just, right. I don't know. Looking back though, nobody, I was about to say like one last night of freedom, but dude, I mean, I think, we watched and- I think we watched TV and went to sleep. Like nobody was drinking. I know that much. Right. Yeah. And you have such a, nervous sort of heaviness in the pit of your stomach that that you don't really want to go partying or anything you just want to get going you want to get get the job started we had one soldier just not show up that morning oh wow i never really knew him i mean he'd been there for two weeks or something um he wasn't one of my guys and then the morning of the deployment, he just wasn't there <laughs> wouldn't answer his phone yeah it could be interesting to know this work 
Right. It, right. It'd be interesting to see the AWOL statistics. Um, I've never looked into it, but um, I I have a duffel bag here at the house that is actually a bag full of uh, someone that went AWOL, his, his equipment. Uh, I, I ended up with it because I like was the guy that investigated all the stuff or I tried to have him pay for all the stuff that he yeah. uh, owed the army for. And uh, once I got all, all the stuff turned in that was useful, I had I still had this bag full of stuff that now is my heavy punching bag. And <laughs> and I kind of enjoy the fact that it's from a guy that went AWOL uh, because that's, in my opinion, not knowing all the circumstances, that's pretty disgraceful. Was it right before the deployment or was it in the... This guy was in the middle of it. Oh, uh, like you went home on leave and never came back. You went home on leave and never came back. Yeah. So that leave in the middle of the deployment is something I'm interested, excited to talk about because I think that's something that you do right, it. I don't think a lot of people know about that. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. Step yeah. back into the world for just long enough to not acclimate and then go back. Yeah, that is very strange. Well, dude, I think this is probably a good stopping point. We just kind of hit a little bit on Kandahar Airfield. So I'll try to piece this together a little bit. The flight, you, you fly out of uh, Port Campbell through one or two different places, eventually end up at a military base in Kyrgyzstan, I think it is. Um, and you take a military aircraft into your area. So in 2010, our area was, was Southern Afghanistan. So we flew into Kandahar Airfield and spent, I don't know, a week or two there getting ready um, before we, we jumped out to, uh, to Zari District. So I think that's probably a good, good stopping point for now. And we'll pick it back up maybe when we're taking rounds as you head into the first airfield. Did that happen to you guys? Right. <laughs> Not quite like that, but it was, it was exciting. I don't think our bird got shot at, but we got delayed because others were getting shot at. Yeah, that was happening. Yeah. That was not a uh, completely made up situation that they were warning us about. That was a big target. Is those, those, uh, those cargo helicopters flying into a kind of the middle of the desert where the Taliban is, they're going to get their, all their weapons out, their RPGs, and they're going to try to take those things down. Welcome to Afghanistan. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. That's a good, uh, good thing to dive into next time. But we'll call it for now. Appreciate you jumping on, John. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.